What I'm trying to do is speak to white people <laughs> as a white person to say, what are we doing? Like, that's more the conversation. I can't say what the lived experiences are. I, I can only read about them and learn and listen, but I can tell other white people when we're behaving badly and doing wrong and doing harm. Because um, I've also done it. Welcome to season three of The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast that explores the world of inequity in nonprofits and philanthropy including where we should step into our power or step out of the way. I'm your host and fellow traveler on this journey, Michelle Shireen Murray. It's part of my desire and effort to bring zero-cost information, case studies, and inspiration to everyone in nonprofits and philanthropy, aka the third sector. And this is especially for anyone who wants to do better on this journey. Speaking of inspiration, Liz LeClaire seems to be one of the controversial names in the fundraising space. Why? Well, we'll be asking her. We're covering a couple of topics today you won't want to miss, and we'll start with her background. Liz is a vocal advocate for human rights, gender equality, and social justice. She's a contributing editor to The Charity Report, a new posting for her, though she's been writing articles for years now, that awaken our sector to some of the injustices we perpetuate. She has started a new community interest company, Sargasso Philanthropic CIC, focusing on equity work. Liz is the current chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Women's Impact Initiative. She sits on the board of the CFRE International, which is basically a certification program for fundraisers. And she sits on the board of the African American Development Officers Network as a white woman. In the fall of 2019, Liz helped co-found the National Day of Conversation to highlight the issue of sexualized violence in fundraising. In 2020 and 2021, she's been a fierce advocate for fundraisers of color as we take fire for exposing injustices in our sector and promoting more equitable fundraising practices. I consider Liz to be one of just a couple of white women who are not afraid to use their platform and their positional authority and voice to push for equity in a sea of basically silence from so many white folks in our sector. Liz hails from Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada, and we have been waiting so long to talk with her on this show. Liz, welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you so much. And it's always awkward to sit through an introduction. <laughs> A lot of people feel that way, but Liz, you've done so much to be an advocate for people of color in the nonprofit sector. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that people see that and um, that I am doing that. I'm grateful that it's doing something or it, it is serving some purpose because I just think that there's this uh, always this fear, whether it's you know the Me Too movement and men saying, I don't want to say something in case I offend you know, the women or I, I'm seen to be stepping in. It's the same with white people. I think there's a ingrained fear of uh, not wanting to be talking over or uh, stepping in with that white saviorism. And I think it's hard. Some people find it hard to figure out where their space is. So um, I'm always glad to hear that whatever I'm doing has actually been useful in some way. So. Well, I mean, I think it has, and we'll talk more about it um, in a moment, but um, I mean, some of us think useful, right, and and powerful, and some people consider you to be controversial. I've heard words <laughs> like polarizing, divisive, and combative used when people are describing you. So mm -hmm. what is that about? What do you think makes you controversial? I think that I am controversial to certain segments of the fundraising sector. I think that the word controversial or polarizing gets used in reference to me 
by a certain demographic within the sector, which tends to be at this point, people who are, I'll just be very honest, I've, I've said it poorly in the past, sometimes on Twitter, and I've apologized for that. But I think people who've made a living off of some of the the systems that are, you know, that are being critiqued, and they're very angry about it. And I think they think because I am part of or I've been a member of AFP or that I sit on the board of CFRE that I should be defending them. Um, right. And I think that they there's a fear-based reaction to it. But also, I think, you know, it's funny. I've had a lot of critique, especially in my role as the chair of the Women's Impact Initiative, that I should not be so vocal about things that are outside of the scope of that committee. Um, mm. Not that long ago had... And this one really stuck with me because I every time I have this conversation, I bring it up. Someone that wrote basically that they were going to be glad when my term was over because they were tired of listening to what I had to say. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I, there's definitely people out there that don't like what I'm doing. And I've said this in the past in some posts that I've written. I'm not really that concerned because they're not the people that I'm trying to reach. They're the ones that generally, for the most part, are missing the whole point of the movement, the whole point of the change that's being asked to have happen. And a really good current example is, unfortunately, um, sometimes people who are afraid of getting vaccinations, the more you try to convince them, the less they become convinced that you have their best interests at heart. And I think that's a really, really extreme example. But I think that can play itself out in other ways in society where people decide that they have a defined idea. And then the more that you push them or try to convince them, the more defensive they become and the worse it becomes. So it's kind of those people I'm not sure I, I would ever reach or if it's really worth trying sometimes. It's a lot of energy. Right. I, I, th I think there's always an argument to be had around like who is and isn't movable and where do we expend our energy when we are talking about issues that are important to ourselves, right? Yeah. I mean, as when it concerns me is when those people have decision-making power. That's right. And... I do have a tendency to think that some of those people are very much still embedded in uh, the organizations that I've referenced. You know, that there there are some lack of flexibility or unwillingness to see some of the critiques is helpful. Yeah. Uh, those people, I mean, I do get concerned about them, but at the same time, they're becoming increasingly irrelevant because there's a whole new swath of young fundraisers and people in social movements that are kind of bringing new ideas forward. And I, you know, like every generation you either change and evolve or you become irrelevant. So eventually, I, I hate to say this, eventually it'll, some of that will switch and someone like me will eventually have people even younger saying, no, what you're saying isn't right either. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that you're vocal about, well, you've been vocal about is community centric fundraising. So mm -hmm. for folks who are listening and who haven't heard about it, if you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, Community-centric fundraising is a movement that values equity and social justice by prioritizing the community over individual organizations, recognizing the racist roots of nonprofits and philanthropy, and fostering belonging, promoting holistic practices, you know, really looking at ecosystems, whole ecosystems of services that we provide and things that are happening, and mutual support for each other. I am a co-chair and co-founder of community-centric fundraising and the content hub that was created in July 2020. And yet when that community-centric fundraising content hub was launched, we started taking a lot of fire in the form of hate mail, posts from haters, and bitter, white, angry folks. And in spring 2021, 
We received some really bold, ugly critiques centered in paternalism, racism, and patriarchy from some of the biggest names in our fundraising practice. Liz, you saw this, and not only did you go to bat on social media platforms, but you filed an ethics complaint against one particularly loud, angry person who launched a three-week tirade against CCF, and you asked for his materials to be banned from the study in our certification program, the CFRE. And you also wrote a piece that personally moved me um, and so many other fundraisers I know called This is the Apology We Deserve, which was an open letter to the fundraising sector and especially to folks of color in the sector. Liz. <laughs> <laughs> That was amazing. Um, I will also say, because I was being personally attacked um, in some other arenas, Liz, you have sent me some help uh, and some helpful advice, and I appreciate you for that too. But do you want to talk more about spring 2021? (laughs) Uh, I will just say, I just think the individual and the individuals that were doing what they did don't deserve to have any more airtime. There was a number of us that received an email from from you that highlighted some of the posts that were happening, the vitriol. And I think I had missed some of it, but the more I read it, the more I dug into it, the more I looked into it, I was just really horrified by the people that were friends with this individual who I respect, I had respect for at the time, who were saying nothing. And uh, what I realized... I kept thinking somebody else was going to jump in and then I realized that they weren't. And so there was that moment that we all have when, um, what's that sociological phenomenon, the bystander effect, where everyone thinks somebody else is going to jump in and everybody's secretly watching someone. I think it was in that scenario, someone's being murdered. (laughs) But I think, you know, everyone thinks that somebody else is calling 911 and no one does anything because they're thinking somebody else is going to take care of it. And I, I had this moment where, I was like, well, I'm either doing this or I'm contributing to the harm that's happening. And as I'm sure everyone witnessed, once I get really upset and angry and frustrated, I think that I saw enough to know that it needed to stop and it needed to be dealt with as soon as possible. That is part of, you know, when we talk about why people think I'm controversial and polarizing, there are people that are beloved in the sector for a variety of reasons and they do harm. People think that they deserve forgiveness for what they've done. And I I know someone used the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. But for me, for for me, that is not, that's not an exit, you know, that there's no excuse for it. I think the people that say those things have the privilege of not having these things affect them. So yeah, I I took that on. I, I did all the things that you've talked about some of which I made public, which you're not supposed to do. But I, what I did realize was if I didn't make it public that I was filing these complaints, no one would ever hear that they happened. That's right. And I thought that the community that he harmed needed to know that that had happened. So I'm disappointed. I'm really disappointed. And this is going to make a lot of people really angry, but I'm really disappointed in some of the people that didn't speak up and have continued to stay silent about it. And in fact, have created i think there's this little subculture now where it's like well you know we can't say anything because if we do then ccf people are gonna you know go after us and i think that that in itself is a narrative that is unhelpful and contributes again to this kind of us versus them mentality and i i'm really disappointed in quite a lot of them and i think they know it i haven't heard from most of them and those that i have they've been really angry with me but i'm i'm 
happy to say to whoever's listening that I'm fine with that. To me, that's relationships and friendships or so-called professional relationships that I'm, I don't want to maintain because there's no integrity. This was, you know, the incident we were referring to was an incident that happened spring 2021, but shit still keeps going down. And every time you are there to address it. And I mean, I was just talking to Mallory Mitchell at Black Visions <laughs> in Minneapolis. And Mallory was saying that she feels like she knows you because of your Twitter feed, which I also love and follow. Um, which is my think, brain you know... flowing out in <laughs> 240 characters or however many it is. I can't remember. But yeah. Right. But, but also, you know, when there are people on Twitter or LinkedIn or articles, full articles that are written kind of decrying community-centric fundraising as some kind of fad or some kind of idealistic vision that can't possibly come true or as basically a pipe dream, you know, also um, more explicitly folks who are belittling and making small and also devaluing and, and discrediting folks of color in our sector you are there to handle it. And you are definitely, in my eyes, the most prominent voice out there kind of taking a look. Well, I mean, I, I brought this up when I first started talking about sexual harassment. There's an incredible woman here in Canada, Hadia Rodrique, and she wrote this piece, sort of a, a first person experience, or she kind of exposed the racism on Bay Street. She was a, a lawyer for the financial sector. And I think she was the only black woman in her entire law firm. And she was the keynote speaker. I would just like to do a shout out to Anne Rosenfeld, who's with Hillborn, and also was the chair of that, I, I believe the chair that year for that conference. Anne has been a staunch advocate and uh, tries to support and uphold all the values that you're you're talking about that I believe in as well. And, and what, I'm she, sorry, what's Hillborn? Hillborn News in, in Canada is like a e-newsletter and they also do, they publish um, as well. And I believe they're the publishers behind um, Collecting Courage as well. Like they worked with Gail mm. Pico and that group Got on it. that piece. Yeah. Um, so Anne's phenomenal. And she brought Hidea as their keynote speaker. And she, it was an, a really fascinating conversation. I was sitting in the audience and the thing that really stuck with me is uh, when she said it's imperative for those people with privilege. It's not the responsibility of those who've already been marginalized, but the responsibility of those with privilege to speak up when they see injustice. Mm. And I and I just that really cemented itself in my brain. And it, it doesn't come from a place of white saviorism because I don't think I speak on behalf of communities of color. What I'm trying to do is speak to white people <laughs> as a white person to say, what are we doing? Like, that's more the conversation. I can't say what the lived experiences are. I, I can only read about them and learn and listen, but I can tell other white people when we're behaving badly and doing wrong and doing harm. Because um, I've also done it. I think that's the other piece, too. I think a lot of people, there's some people out there that critique me often and say, well, you often talk about other people doing it and you're not taking any responsibility. I... 100%. I have been part of the problem and I'm sure at times continue to be problematic, but at least I'm willing to own it and apologize and sit with the discomfort and then figure out how to do better. That is part of the work, isn't it? I it's mean, hard. I think it is hard. I almost think, you know, there are um, 10 principles that, that we talk about in community-centric fundraising, but I've been rethinking that and imagining that maybe we should add more principles, including one about how 
part of our work in the nonprofit sector is also as individuals needing to do that hard work of understanding where we make mistakes and also addressing it, knowing that it's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to walk through and sit in that discomfort and process it and do better. Well, I think, again, everything that I have learned about oppression has been through my own experience and my eyes were, everything was expanded for me as I started to do this advocacy work. But my my experience with oppression was coming forward to men that I worked with and worked for and some women and saying, I had this individual sexually harassed me. What are we going to do about it? And hearing that, yes, but maybe you didn't hear it properly. Maybe. And I it was my first time in my life where I was not getting the response that I thought was fair. You know, as a white woman, there's a lot of things that you experience as a young woman, certainly around harassment and things like that. But I've lived a very privileged life. I've had access to education. Um, my family's always been very supportive of me. I've been able to do a lot of things. That's why I'm in the nonprofit sector. I I was able to make a choice to be here. And that's, a, I think, a, a situation that a lot of white women or quite a number of white people have found themselves in is that this is for them as something that they can do because they have those privileges. And it was the first time I came up against the wall of somebody saying to me, yeah, that's happening, but we don't want to deal with it because it's going to be uncomfortable for us. And I know this sounds really naive, but I think I had no concept up until that point in my life of what it meant to tell someone the truth and then for them to say, I hear you, but maybe you're you're not hearing it right, or I hear you and we're not going to do anything about it. And then this whole veil got lifted off of my eyes to the stuff that I had heard about, which was the systemic issues. And I was like, oh, this is what people are talking about. I mean, I was in my late 30s. Right. How unbelievably privileged am I to have that been the first time in my life where that was where I finally clued into this. And then I thought, God, the th- and I heard, I thought about the things that I had said to people and the ways that I'd contributed to this. And it all starts to peel back. And I think, you know, we can choose to either witness it, acknowledge it, and do something about it, or we continue to be a part of the problem. And I have the privilege of being able to speak out about it. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsors? If you want to find out how to get your name and work out to our ever-expanding community of like-minded listeners, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd love to have you. Today, we're talking with Liz LeClaire, a powerful advocate for social justice in the third sector. Liz has just become a contributing editor to The Charity Report, She is a co-founder of the National Day of Conversation across Canada. She's a board member of the African American Development Officers Network, chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Women's Impact Initiative, board member of the CFRE International, and co-founder of Sargasso Philanthropic CIC. She's also someone who has really influenced me with her writing, and she's been an incredible advocate for change in these last few years as community-centric fundraising takes off. Speaking of speaking out about that particular issue, you came onto the international scene when you shed light on sexual harassment in the fundraising sector through your own account of sexual assault by a prospective donor, 
which mm-hmm. you published in January 2019 for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And then later, you chose to pursue legal action in a separate matter against a donor who'd been sexually harassing you for four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And you shared your experience of the many flaws in navigating the systems and sexual harassment legislation in Canada. I mean, in a, again, in a global publication in our sector. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh... So again, going back to that conference where Hidea Rodriguez spoke. So that was kind of, I think that was the fall of 2019. No, it was 2018. It was the fall of 2018. So we're we're in the, the throes of the Me Too movement really at that point. And when we say the Me Too movement, I mean the uh, celebrity version. I, I mean, must acknowledge, of course, that like, like many mo- really important movements in history that a woman of color started Me Too. But it wasn't really until... Um, you know, some celebrities and the Harvey Weinstein scandal kind of blew up. And then that became the hashtag that, you know, other people started to take notice. But I think, you know, I, I had been sort of listening to the news and and hearing these stories and really relating to what was happening and starting to have this realization that what had happened to me was not just part of my job. It was actually really wrong. Yeah. Um, again, the social conditioning that you're from a young age, you're taught to just shut, you know, shirk off whatever the inappropriate touching or the inappropriate conversation or someone leaving their hand on your hip for too long, or, you know, an older male donor making some inappropriate comment. It just always gets brushed off. And I remember when I was younger and I was managing a team in Victoria, BC, I even joked to the girls that it was a little bit like glorified prostitution at times. Um, So when you talk about me contributing to the problem, there's a good example. And I remember sitting in the conference and there was these two young women in front of me who were at Humber in Toronto, which has a really great fundraising program. Mm. And someone at the closing plenary in the audience said, you know, what are we going to do about this? Is there anything we can do? And a lot of people were saying, it's too hard. I don't know if we can, what are we going to do? Tell donors no. And I was watching these two young women and thinking, man, if this was my entrance to the profession, I would quit right away and find... Mm -hmm somewhere else to work. And I thought, well, I gotta, I have to explain somehow to the public and to the sector how serious this actually is. And I went back to where I, I'm here in Halifax and I asked a friend of mine who works for the CBC if this is something people would read. And he said, yeah. And I was actually surprised how far it went. But I think, mm-hmm. again, speaks to the fact that these conversations are happening behind closed doors. The Whisper Network's are not just in the entertainment industry. They're very strong in the nonprofit sector. I'd ask any woman in any city to tell you the top five people who you don't want to be alone with on a meeting. You know, they all have the same names. And you can just look at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising and what's happened over there with those incredible women that have been battling that organization, which is like their version of AFP on just getting some men who are actually fellows in the Institute kicked out because they've been sexually harassing young women at conferences. It's been a debacle. So about time though. It's about yeah. time that it be addressed, isn't it? Well, it's it, it is. And I, I think what's fascinating to me is again when we talk about systems, people always have this propensity to go and this all kind of comes full circle back to what we were talking about before. People always expect those who have already been victimized to name and shame or identify those who are problematic and do something about it. Um, I know that in the UK right now, there's a lot of people saying, well, we need to know who these men are. And what it does is it takes the onus off organizations, leaders, and generally 
our organizations as a whole and the way that we operate to do better. And it puts the onus back on the victim. That's right. And it does more harm. And I think it's the same around this stuff with community centric fundraising. You know, I don't, I think when you wrote me that email, I was like, why should Michelle and these guys have to continue to have this fight when yeah. it it's damaging and, and toxic and traumatic? It, it mirrored so much of my experience around reporting sexual harassment. I know it's different, but there are elements of this that are so eerily similar. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, societally here in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., and I'm sure in other countries, the target or a victim is expected to take on the additional burdens. Those burdens can include things like being in a public spotlight and being critiqued by random, anonymous, or well-known armchair judges, or having strangers to the situation like forgive the offender without any repair being done with the target. Like, it's not enough to be targeted or harassed already. And you, after all that you yourself have already been through, you wrote an apology. Well, I mean, the apology... That apology was the one that I thought that I deserved and that everyone else needed to hear as well. Um, But it was also the one that I wanted people to give to you and to the members of community-centric fundraising or the people in the in the movement. I think it's funny. It's like like I said with the veil lifting. It's you don't always see the horrible things that are happening um, until you are trying to combat it. And then when you are in the middle of trying to help combat it or, or try and deal with it or try and advocate and you, and you become the target of the same abuse, how community-centric fundraising members and, and the founders have handled all of this vitriol and hatred with such class and such, I mean, the things you could expose about people, you could be just posting their emails to the internet and letting them show their asses online. You could be doing, you could be doing that. By the way, (laughs) 100% we could be, yeah. You could be, you could be doing that, but you're not. So I think that takes fortitude and, and it, 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 it's hard on the head. And I think, you know, I'm always, I just so amazed and I guess learn a lot from all of you um, as well every day Um, because my first instinct would be (laughs) like, as my new website with all of the shitty things people have written. I mean, to me. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. We've been we have been I'm sure there's temptation. Know, yeah, that there's a, a small group of us that raised money for, did research around, you know, built this content hub. And in that group, you know, once we launched the site and started getting, you know, of course lots of accolades. Of course the accolades outweigh, I won't even say criticism, because criticism is really different than like spewing hatred, right? Criticism so, is what, being too kind to what to what you've experienced, yeah. Right. As we've started receiving things, you know, we we thought about it. And our group certainly has been divided um, at times around whether we err some of the things that we receive or whether we we don't say anything because it's not worth giving that person or those topics airtime. Some of the fans of the pod and my colleagues had questions to pass on to you. And here's one. How do you think fragility and especially fragility coming from white women in our sector can be combated? What's your experience of what works? Yeah, I I mean, I think that kind of fragility is a symptom of lack of confidence. I Mm. I really do. So I think, and it also stems from privilege. 
um, for you to, there is a quote and I'm trying to think of who, there was a recent report out in the UK, The I think it's the Bond group wrote it, around racism and fundraising. And the quote on the front cover was something to do along the lines of, and I, I apologize, I probably should have written this down as well. Um, you as, as the person who does harm, you don't get to decide um, how the person responds or how you've made them feel. Um, you know, the person who perpetrates the racial harm does not get to decide how the group that they've um, harmed feels and how they choose to respond to it. Um, and then this idea that white people want to fur further regulate the response. I think if I was really to look at the core of this, the response to community-centric fundraising to me is a lot of white people in the sector, I think Fleur Larson really articulates this beautifully, is like, come to this with a sense of martyrdom. I could be doing all of these other things, but I've chosen to dedicate my life to fundraising where I'm not making the money I could be and I'm working these hours. And well, first of all, no one asked you to. So. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So you need to get we over yourself, <laughs> including myself. Like you're choosing to do this because it makes you feel good about yourself. And you and you also get a sense of that from the people around you that think they admire you for doing this work. But I think their response to community centric is this deep sense of like, well, everything that I've built my image on my uh, my identity is being deconstructed and and holes are being poked in it. And so they're reacting to that and it, it's very personal for them. But then secondly, the fragility comes from this lack of confidence. It's, it's this tr desire yes. to control, to further control communities of color. You know, this idea that you get to control the response. Well, guess what? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you don't get to choose what's racist as a white person. Yeah. You don't. I know that that's going to probably end up as something that's going to piss people off, but you don't. As white people, we don't get to decide what's racist. We really okay. don't. Um, so I think the fragility, for sure, that that's definitely. What? How do we combat it? I think the more we talk about it, the more white people talk about it, and the more that we acknowledge it, and having other white people call white people out on it, that's the piece that's missing for me right now. Yes, I think there's some more people starting to step into that space, but it, it'd be great to see more do it. Right. It seems like you need a. A uh, boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, for white women who want to step up to call each other out. I think like, Fleur's doing that really well. <laughs> I'm actually signed up for you know, her. Fleur is. She's amazing, but there's just yeah. one Fleur. We need more folks. For everyone listening, we're talking about Fleur Larson of Fleur Larson Facilitation. We recorded an episode called White Women as Gatekeepers that you can find in season one of this podcast. And yeah, she's pretty incredible. One of the things that I think we should be doing when we're thinking about things like donor engagement is political education. Like, let's really connect the dots for our community around what the whole ecosystem looks like. Who is involved in this thing that we're trying to address? How many players do we have in our community? Who exists nationally on the scene? Are we really doing the thing that we want to be doing to serve our communities? Is our work effective? We should be having all of those conversations and we should be having them with our entire community. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I have worked in organizations where donors threaten to remove funding or want to take away their funding because you are not doing exactly what they think should happen, or they have some perspective oh, yes. on, especially around the political. Um, you know, it, it's that they feel that you're somehow not aligning with their values, and I, I'm always, yep. I would, I 
you know, someone, I think someone recently or fairly not that long ago wrote about me that I, you know, it's ironic that I, I'm so vocal about all of this because I'm still in major gifts and I still do this work and that, you know, well, if, if it's so terrible, then why do I still do this work? Well, there's lots, I think the thing that's missing that people aren't understanding about community centric, or at least, um, any of this dialogue around equity is that, we can talk about systems and we can talk about problems and problematic behavior and we can still work with people to come up with better solutions and we can still say no i think that's that scarcity mindset too you know it's this idea that one person can dictate what your organization does because they have wealth and how is that any different from anything else that they you know these right. individuals are so used to affecting or swaying people based on their political influence or their financial influence. And I think, you know, you can still be in major gifts or working in this space, whatever we want to call it. I hate the term major gifts anyways. It's really ridiculous. And say no to people. Yeah. Like it's it's okay. You can do both. You can. <laughs> you can also take money from really wonderful people who want to do amazing things. Yes. It, there's not an if and. It's not a but or or. It's more of a we can – you know, we can do fundraising with an equitable lens and still continue to do amazing work. And I think you guys have got some great examples of how that's worked out. I think we have a lot to explore in our sector about what works for our individual organizations around that and what looks realistic for where we're at. <laughs> well, and I think I think that's the other thing people need to remember, too, is everybody's critique of things is their perspective or their vision or, uh, you know, like. I think all of us that write or write things, I, I so we were, we're starting at the beginning of this conversation talking about an idea that I've been kind of just like percolating in my brain. And I, I have this perspective of like a, a broken bowl with, you know, it's starting to crack. It's had so much pressure, so much. It's this idea that it's like, it has symbolic importance to the people that first bought it or had it or bought it or used it. And over time, it's gradually kind of been worn away and, and worn at. And they refuse, almost like you refuse to see the cracks in it. Um, and then a different person comes along and, and sees it for what it is. But if they tell you that it's got a break in it or that it, there's something wrong with it, that you're going to be offended, that they're saying that it's not worth anything. I think we've lost some perspective in this whole conversation mm. that that critique of our sector is not about saying there's something completely wrong and that we need to throw it all away. I think it's more about acknowledging that there are some things that are needing to be fixed. Um, and every person who looks at it is going to see it a little differently. Um, and you can take that feedback and do what you want with it. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I don't know, maybe that's a bad analogy. I'm working this really crappy concept out in, uh, in real time, but it just feels like people are so <laughs> stuck on this idea that we have to preserve it the way it is. Yeah. Um, the donor-centered approach, because it's been effective to a degree, must be the way it continues on. And I don't know if being effective and being impactful are the same thing. Oh, I love that. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank you for that. I'll be thinking on that for a while. I don't know if it's a very Cracks good analogy. Porcelain. Well, you know, I like I, it. That Japanese tradition of repairing bowls with gold, right? Um, making something that's been, you know, broken and fix it, or repairing it in a way that makes it more beautiful. Um, not just aesthetically, but 
adds more value. I think some of that to me is where I've kind of been thinking, like, how are we, why are we so stuck on thinking that it's broken and can't be fixed? Not that anything, and everything's a journey. There's no one answer. I find that so interesting. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I I guess it's like this concept that, you know, it may have had value at one time and it it still could potentially, but you're not the one that's going to be able, that's going to get to define that moving forward. You know, once you're gone and it's things have changed, people continue to build on what you, the foundations of what you brought to the table, or they may completely change them. Um, I don't know in 50 years what our sector is going to look like. I, I don't even know if it'll be a sector. Who knows? But I think if we're really challenging ourselves to do, think deeply about it, then hopefully it'll be different. I hope it will be. I hope there's a lot of people, a lot less people that look like me in 50 years, a lot less. <laughs> I really well, do. For, I mean, for that to happen in our sector, right, so many things would have to change, including that the people that do look like you and me. Um, and folks who have have the most power in our in the structural hierarchies that we do have within many of our nonprofits need to be making better decisions, listening, really listening and process, then integrate process and enact, you know, make changes um, so that we can welcome folks into this sector. Like you, you know, going back to what you were saying about that conversation around sexual harassment and how it's too hard to someone making a comment at a conference, it's too hard to address it in our sector. And you were saying, you know, for someone new to fundraising, walking into that room and hearing that, why would you want to join our profession? And I think white supremacy works like that in Mm -hmm. our nonprofits as well. So I know so many people who enter in so excited, on fire, can't wait, are excited about fundraising, get involved, start, you know, start skill building, you know, start getting experience in the sector, but the way that they are treated or where the organization is at in their journey, which is often like haven't started looking or have just started looking, but, you know, especially white fragility is getting in the way of change. And we are just watching so many people of color leave the profession. So yeah. I, I, I hope you're right. I hope one day our field is more diverse. And for that to happen, some significant changes need to really happen in our sector. I agree. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I've been called on that a number of times by people rightly to say, like, just because we change the way the sector looks doesn't mean we've changed the way it operates. And it's really about, look, you know, all the things you just said. And I have to remember that, you know, again, this is the the lens that that privilege that I came to the sector with. I, I am really excited about joining the board of AADO. Um, and working with Birgit and all of those individuals, because I think um, they've been doing this work for a long time. And not only I'm hoping I can help contribute, but I think I'm going to learn an awful lot about what I don't know and then figure out how to take that knowledge and do something about it in whatever way I can. Right. And and AADO? Uh, the African-American Development Officers. So that was founded by Birgit Burton about 30 years ago, kind of just as a, a, a group that got together of uh, fundraisers of color. They are now officially becoming their own nonprofit and a charity, and uh, they have over 3,000 members. And I was really honored to be asked by Birgit to join the board um, to help them build their capacity and grow the message around the work they're doing. It's creating a community, but also helping with recruitment 
but also really getting organizations um, who hire fundraisers of color to not just do it as a token kind of check the box, but these are the ways that you can ensure that people feel that they're part of the the organization they're working with. And Birgit's just like, and she's going to be the, uh, she's the incoming, she's the chair elect for AFP and will be the first black woman to chair AFP global. So um, finally, yeah, (laughs) it's taken a while, but she's, uh, she's an absolutely phenomenal person and just has a big heart and a big soul. And I've learned so much from her the last couple of years as well. I would say for me, the biggest greatest gift I've received from all of this experience has been all the women of color that I've come to know and and meet and become friends with. And um, I learned so much from every single day. Um, And I'm grateful for that. I really have so much gratitude. Um, Well, you got a fan club. (laughs) (laughs) There's a fan club of us. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri, and this episode is sponsored by our 47 Patreon supporters, by communitycentricfundraising.org, and by Freedom Conspiracy, a fundraising consulting collective. If you enjoy this podcast, you can inspire us to continue this beautiful series through your financial contribution on Patreon. Join us on any social media platform to learn more. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsors? If you want to find out how to get your name and work out to our ever-expanding community of like-minded listeners, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd love to have you. Some of your fans would love to ask questions. Uh, I don't know that I have. <laughs> I don't know that I have permission to list names. So okay, you, to... you do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Go for it. So one of our colleagues wrote the other day and told me about an issue. They said... I cannot wait for that Liz LeClaire episode. Literally had a colleague tell me I should make a move to major gifts because he had some donors who could open up to a young pretty woman in ways they couldn't open up to him. So my first response to that is, ew, um, that's such a professional and articulate response. Yeah, I mean, that makes my skin crawl because <laughs> I've had that same conversation. The commodification of women, especially young women in our sector, but in particular, and I think this is the best way of phrasing it, Ohio State University, there's two researchers there, uh, Dr. Aaron Beaton and Dr. Megan lapeer Schloop, and they've been doing research with AFP on the whole issue of sexual harassment. And what they refer to it as is the sexualization or the sexual commodification of young fundraisers. <sighs> when I said glorified prostitution, I know that I, I said it as a joke, but there are times where this line of work has felt like that. It, it's the same as like, there are moments where it's felt like, you know, those restaurants you go to and they have all the waitresses, the young ones that all have to wear a black dress and the dress is really short. And there's kind of, it's it's like a classed up version basically of Hooters. There's, you know, I can respect Hooters for the simple fact that it's in the name, but I think it's almost worse when you dress it up differently and trying to pretend it's not that. Like I, I think it's the same as like anything else. I'll take anyone who has an opinion and is at least sticks to it and kind of believes in it. But when you try and cover it in some kind of like veil of like pretense or whatever, I, this this whole idea that we can send young women into these really vulnerable situations and use them not because they want to be sexualized, but because they will be sexualized to garner money is a glorified form of pimping your staff out. So mm. 
whoever that individual is should be ashamed of himself. Um, frankly, like, I mean, if she felt safe, I would report it, but I mean, I know that's hard to do. I'm in a very different position in my life. Um, and it is very challenging to have those conversations, but I mean, shame on him for even insinuating that. The, the researchers at Ohio state also sort of said to me, you know, have you ever thought about the word grooming in reference to what happened to you? with the donor that over the four and a half Oof. years. And I thought to myself, I thought that was a term only used for pedophiles. And they said, well, right. no, gro- it, you were being groomed. Uh. And I, I've come to use that term now because that's what happened to your, your colleague as well. I'm sorry that happened to her. And I'm sorry that happened to you, Liz. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry that any of us have to go through that. It shouldn't be like also, that. Also um, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thanks for talking about that. I know some several members of our group, um, plus one, wanting to know, you know, as a white woman, what do you see are the biggest ways in which white women are complicit or problematic in our sector? Oh, my God. Well, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> I know. I think this concept of like what's appropriate. Again, like this whole idea of controlling controlling what an office looks like, controlling the way people work, controlling how they look at work. It's about this idea of kind of making it in a way that makes them comfortable, maintains a norm that they're used to, and this refusal to go outside of like out of their comfort zone. I think the biggest things are when receiving feedback, being defensive, um, especially when they're receiving feedback from people you know that they work with, people of color, BIPOC colleagues around something they've said or done, and, and then crying. Or, I mean, you can cry. I, re- I remember somebody asked me, they said, well, does that mean you can't get upset? And I'm like, no, it's it's about the fact that you've done harm to somebody else and now you're crying and making them feel bad for you doing something that caused harm. I think this whole concept that, I think it stems from this idea of, never, like I said, never having dealt with any challenges in your life and having no concept of what it's like to navigate that so when they get into the workplace they're like in these little bubbles or they're coming into it with a real sense of martyrdom and and then when someone tells them that something that they've done isn't perfect they lose it and i think it's very stepford wifeish yeah i'd say that's probably the word. i think the kind of the tone you set in the office by how you react to feedback is um is a big part of it and I've, I was just telling you, I think before we started the podcast, I've been dealing with a lot of sort of boomer generation women who, in spite of the fact that they also have their own challenges that they've gone through in their careers, refuse to accept that maybe they don't know everything about what, you know, the struggles are for people these days. Um, yeah. Or wanting to, you to stick to the script. Yeah. There's a script and there's a way that we operate that you have to work within. You can't possibly change. That's more insidious to me than outright racism. I mean, if I can add to it, even though the question's for you. <laughs> no, I you go ahead. Along with the, you know, when we're thinking about like white feminism and the boomer generation, or maybe not just white feminism, but the boomer generation and feminism, I'm, I think of rubber stamping each other's, you know, whatever, initiative, opinion, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, partly because there was this idea of we must band together. I'm going to stand behind anything that you're going to say. And there's something so beautiful and powerful about that, right? But it becomes less beautiful and still powerful when it's done, you know, 
without consideration for exactly what you're talking about. Like, maybe you don't know everything. Like, maybe we need to be taking a deeper look into what is actually a problem now, you know, or maybe there are more nuances here. Maybe there's a new analysis to be had. Yeah. Um, I mean, because- you know, we, we knew what we knew 30 years ago, 30 years ago, but there's new information now, no matter who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just get super frustrated by it because to me, white feminism is not feminism. If you're leaving anyone behind, feminism was never supposed to leave anyone behind. And we clearly have not done a great job of opening doors for everyone. Or we have forged ahead and forgotten to leave the door open for everyone. Or we purposely closed it because it meant that there was just more room for us in the C-suite. And I think that in itself is a disservice to everyone. Thank you. Here's another question from multiple people. Which CCF principle most resonates with you? Oh, I feel like I'm in a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can look at them. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, the first one for me really is the most important. I think the overarching principle of looking at things through the lens of equity first, for me, speaks volumes. And the reason I say that is because in my work, so we talked about the National Day of Conversation, um, in my work on that to try and bring that forward, um, that was a lot of volunteers. And I was like, okay, sexual harassment, half the population deals, you know, or at least we know that, you know, we were saying at that time, 25% of women in fundraising have experienced this. We now know based on new statistics, about 78% of women in the sector have, have had some form of sexual harassment. Well, I'm like, okay, well, at least three quarters of women in the sector are going to want to deal with this. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me why we had an all white volunteer committee, except for one woman who's phenomenal, um, Shanaz Kakul, and she's the former CEO of Dying with Dignity. Um, Canada, mm. and she was um, fired for asking for her her what she should have been paid as a CEO compared to her white counterparts, and and she's been in an ongoing legal battle around that. And Shanaz was kind enough to call me in and pull me aside and said, you know, this battle or this not battle this this thing you're trying to do is important, but it is one lens of the bigger equity piece. And you're missing so much by having this conversation focused on this one thing. And I, it really took for her to have that conversation with me to go, holy crap, I am not doing a good job of making this equity focused. I have taken a very specific form of oppression that frankly, this is going to probably upset some people. If the one thing that you're dealing with is gender discrimination, then you in itself, fundamentally, if that's the only thing you've had to deal with because you're a white woman, that's a privilege that you have. Yes. Um, and so Shanaz very kindly sort of talked me through it and explained things to me. And I think she was really nervous about having that conversation with me. And I was like, God, like, thank you. I didn't know that I, you know, I really had no idea. And I think that that principle, the first principle of looking at everything with equity and race um, as part of the dialogue is such a fundamentally important thing. And it's something I'm trying to keep top of mind every day when I do the work I do, both in my actual job and then any of the the writing I'm doing is like, what are the things that I'm missing? What are the things that I don't know about? Because it creates a more holistic approach to any of the work we're doing. We can't do it perfectly and not, and we can't always do it 
right, but we can try. That's probably the one I, I most align myself with at this point. So I love it. Yeah. I, I often think of principle one as the principle to look at all CCF work through, like anytime we're going to talk about being community centered, we need to use that lens of, of racial equity and, and justice and really think about, think about what we're doing. Thank you for that example. Well, justice and justice, that's the other piece, right? Like just because something is the way it is, doesn't mean it's just, just because it's law does not mean it's just, just because it's how it's always been does not mean it's just. So yeah. I love the principles. I think they're all fantastic, but I think the one I go back to is one because it reminds me of why why this is hard for me is because I haven't had to worry about it for most of my life or I haven't had to think about it. Yeah. Well, um two more questions. What are your thoughts on CCF as a values-based movement? And what do you think will be hardest for a sector to adjust to? So, I I think before we went live, we were talking about how far and why the CCF movement has spread um, and how many people have embraced this concept. And, you know, when you think about, I think I even, I've learned over the time that I've known you, how you guys really formed this with a an idea of it was something that you all knew that you felt that was needed, but you weren't sure how it would be picked up. And I think the authenticity and the, passion with which it was formed has obviously translated and has has been something people have been had an appetite for because it has spread like wildfire and i think the fear you're seeing yeah. in the sector is a fear of of irrelevancy or a fear that because our associations and organizations have moved so slowly to take up this idea of justice and equity and racial equity that very quickly something else is coming sort of to replace it. And I think that that's the fear you're seeing and that's the backlash you're seeing. So I think the biggest thing that CCF is going to contend with over in the years to come is really people being afraid of what it means. Because I think it's dismantling a whole set of values and ideas that people have lived with their whole lives. To go back to my terrible analogy of that bowl um, or, <laughs> I like um, you know, I think that people have held on to this concept for so long thinking that, well, it might be a little outdated and kind of, we're not as progressive as maybe sometimes the private sector is, but you know, we're doing this the fa- the best we can. And then all of a sudden here you guys come for, for a lot of people, what felt like out of the blue with this really amazing, well-formed, beautiful statement and the principles around what, what you wanted to see happen. And it, it, it really clearly has resonated with so many people. I think you have a lot of people who are very jealous. I think that there's a lot of jealousy out there. I think there's a lot of fear. And I think every time that you have that happen to you, I think that you have to remember it's coming from the fact that it's true, that it's true that what you're saying is resonating with people. People are always afraid to lose power or give up power. And I think that's the fear you're seeing. So as a, as a movement itself, I think it's brilliant. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't really believe in it. And I learn from all of you all the time. And I'm grateful that you all did this because I I think I've it's completely reshaped my perspective of the work I'm doing and what purpose I want to serve. And I am so grateful because I felt like I was going through the motions. Um, and it's almost like revitalized or regenerated me and giving me more hope. I have one last question for you. And that's a question that I like to ask all of our guests, which is, 
from the time that you were born until now, there have been so many things that have shaped you and shaped your life and shaped your perspective. Of those things, what is it in your background or your life experience that you think has shaped you to be who you are in this moment? Oh, wow. You know, it's um, very young. I was in my late teens when I was diagnosed with um, what we thought at the time until it was actually fully diagnosed. We thought we I had a bone tumor in my leg. They were worried it was sarcoma, and it actually turned out to be benign, but I had to have surgery to have it removed. And what I thought was going to be one surgery, one and done, turned into 11 years of bone infection, in and out of hospitals, um, IV antibiotics, in and out of clinics, at one point being told that they might have to amputate my leg. And I think in some ways, all of that has given me a very sharp perspective on how short, fragile life can be how quickly we can lose our abilities and have things taken away from us, how much I had to depend on other people to help me out at a very young age. I mean, I spent my first two years at university needing people to help me get in and out of a bathtub because I had a cast on my leg. That I'm grateful for that experience. It was one of the worst, but one of the best experiences I ever had. And I remember probably about three quarters of the way through it, I had was had my like third relapse and I was going into my fifth surgery and I was very depressed. I had lost a lot of weight. Um, I looked almost anorexic at that point. And I was, it was just, I was miserable. And I remember my mom saying to me, you have a choice of what kind of life you want to live. Do you want to be the girl who has this bone infection in her leg? Or do you want to be the person that is living a life and happens to have this as something she's dealing with because it became my identity for a long time. And I am so grateful for her for what she said to me. And I'm also grateful for the experience because I think it has given me so much more compassion and empathy for people who struggle and to know what it means to have to ask for help. I had to ask for help a lot and I had to do it early in my life. And I think that's given me some of the ability to have empathy and understanding and to also know when I'm wrong that I feel like I'm what I'm watching people struggle with is not not having knowledge of when to say, okay, I need help understanding. I don't get this. I had to do that at an early age. So for me, that's been the most one of the most formative experiences of my life. That for me was about choosing what my identity was. And I, I chose to do something other than wallow in it. And I've always been since then a bit of a fighter. And I think that's some of what you kind of see come out in me when I need to draw deep. Um, And I can go for a long time if I have to, because I've had to struggle through that for over. Chronic illness is so much worse than acute because Uh it becomes part of who you are. But again, I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm healthy and happy and I'm surrounded by amazing people as well. So very fortunate and very privileged to have gone through that with someone, especially a mother who was going to go to bat for me. So I would say that. And then, of course, my stepsons, I didn't give birth to them, but man, have they taught me a lot in the short time I've known them in the last eight years. They're uh, every day remind me of how old I am and how quickly I'm I'm becoming irrelevant every day. And I love it. I love that they keep my feet to the fire and and, uh, they're great. They're, They're awesome. So my husband's okay, too. He's okay. 
<laughs> if he's listening, if he's listening to this, he's okay too. Well, it has been, it's been an honor to talk to you. I know that as I talk to other folks, like I mentioned, I just spoke with Mallory Mitchell yeah. uh, on Insta Live recently. You know, I know you've connected with Floor Larson since our podcast. And so, so many people, uh, you know, my whole um, CCF founding group was excited that we were talking today. There are so many people that are excited to hear your voice and for whom I believe you're doing a lot of healing work by being who you are and standing up for the things that you believe in and by being one of the voices out there and especially the voice of a white woman who wins so many other white women in our sector and especially, you know, some of the, like the, the big names in our sector are fully silent. You are there and you are going to bat and advocating and providing a lot of healing in that experience for so many of us. So, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, for, for that and also for all that you've done around building a national day of conversation around sexual harassment in Canada, hopefully um, we can bring that to the US. For all the writing that you're about to do for the charity report, for all the writing that you have already done, for every time you go to bat on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on all the social platforms, and for what must be, you know, for all the work that you're doing in our in our uh, official communities too. Thank you so much for all that you're doing, especially as someone who has also been through so much. Thank you for all the advocacy that you're doing and and for being on The Ethical Rainmaker. Well, thank you for this podcast. And I'm going to say this, and I hope that you guys keep this in. The one thing that I know to be true is that this podcast for me has been one of the the bright lights over the last couple of years. And you're an excellent, excellent interviewer. And you clearly put a lot of thought into this and, and you do such a great job of drawing out the narrative that needs to be heard. So, so much gratitude to you and everybody who contributes to the content hub and Stacy and, and to the founding members. Um, you're all an inspiration to me as well. So mutual admiration society. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. That, that means a lot to me, Liz. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for the ethical rainmaker. Do you love this pod? Well, we have three suggestions. Tell your people about it and subscribe. This pod is being used as curriculum in some university classrooms, boardrooms, workshops. Folks are definitely listening and we don't want your people to miss out. Please share us with your coworkers, friends, and collaborators. Support us on Patreon. If you enjoy this podcast or even just this episode, you can inspire us to continue this beautiful series through your financial contribution on Patreon. Thank you to our newest supporters, Trey, Jen, Kirsten, Ellen, Noel, Corey, Caitlin, Sarah, Chris, and Maria. Thank you, homies. And three, if you have suggestions for future podcast episodes, let us know. DM us on most social platforms like Insta, Facebook, our website, where you can send a voice message to us or find us on the CCF Slack channel. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced in Seattle by Kazmara Hall and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner with socials by Rochelle Pierce. This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, by communitycentricfundraising.org, and by Freedom Conspiracy, a fundraising consulting collective. Find extensive show notes and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, and you can find them on Bandcamp. We're looking forward to more conversations like this one, and we'll be coming to you again in two weeks.